Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. Man, oh man, I I know it's the job of the host to overbill and overpromote what's going to happen in the show, but this Business of Agriculture podcast is the one you are going to be happy you tuned into. We're going to be talking to Dwayne Faber, dairy farmer from Burlington, Washington, and Twitter star. I found him on Twitter. Uh, about maybe a year ago, putting some pretty clever stuff out there. I'll give you a quick tease just from this week because he's a dairy farmer with a tremendous sense of humor and he's young and progressive. That's why he's going to be on this show. You know what he had out there this week? Because this is the Olympics week right now while we're recording this. If you ever think you're committed to winning, just remember the Russians use performance enhancing drugs for curling. You know, it's hard to write funny because people don't have the, uh, the intuition. They can't, like, uh, do the, the, the timing. I, of course, can because, as you all know, listeners to this podcast, I have backgrounds in comedy. So that's why I've been drawn to this guy. I've been keeping up with his stuff. Like I said, he's a dairy farmer. So right there, I've got the love because of my dairy farm roots. As many of you listen to this podcast know, I rip my farm ground out to a dairy farmer now. And uh, also, I'm, I'm drawn to somebody that's funny. So today, we're talking about the future of agriculture. We're talking about social media. We're talking about the agricultural economy. We're talking about trends that you see. And, of course, milk, because I've got a dairy farmer on. And agriculture through the eyes of a young father and farmer, a 33-year-old guy. That's what we're going to have here today. You're listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast. And it's going to be a good one. Remember, we talk about the issues impacting food, fuel, fiber, and farming. So you're at the right place. Are you ready to go? In? Of course you are. Welcome, Dwayne Faber. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Nice to be on here, Damien. Uh, Dwayne, I used to do radio back in the old days, and you know a little bit about me, but a lot of people listening here, I got in this line of work because of uh, being a political comedian. That's how it all started. I was a political comedian and uh, you know, quit my job. The old joke was I was selling lighting fixtures because selling lighting fixtures in California is what you do with a degree in agricultural economics from Purdue University. And then from political comedy, I went into a, a ra an era there where I was trying to do radio, and I did do some radio. They taught me in radio that you need to be three things, and I think about this for speeches or anything that we do. You need to be compelling, relevant, and entertaining. The idea is, imagine, you know, in the old days before satellite radio, you're just flipping around. Compelling means there's a reason you stopped on that station. Imagine you've put it on seek or scan and you're bouncing around. Why am I going to stop on that radio station? Relevant means I stay there because it means something to me. There was something I heard that not only compelled me to stop, but I stayed there because it was relevant to me. And E, the CRE, compelling, relevant, entertaining, I come back tomorrow, the next day, the next day, because I get something out of it. To me, that's why I've stuck with Dwayne Faber on my Twitter feed, because you are compelling, relevant, and entertaining. You're a dairy farmer, you're young, you're progressive. Talk to me now, tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a, uh, married, I have uh, three daughters. Uh, I dairy in Burlington, Washington. We milk about 2,000 cows. Um, I like the business side of uh, dairy. I like agriculture. Um, on Twitter, it, it Twitter to me is kind of an outlet to to put out random thoughts and and to be engaging and entertaining and um, yeah, it's a it's 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 a good way to present your view. Uh, it's been said before that people listen to the court jester, you know, a guy that's funny, that guy that's engaging. You can get away with something that maybe somebody can't when you're just, especially in this political environment, just yelling at each other back and forth. 
But if you pre present your idea or your ideology in somewhat of an entertaining way, then, then people are more apt to, to listen, uh, to, to, to think about what you said instead of constantly screaming at them and barraging them with, with your opinion. Um, and so that's kind of my shtick, if you will, on, on Twitter. You know, I'm not the, the guy that's out there pushing the egg thing, but I'll use it as a, as a, you know, I'll slip it in and try and be humorous and, and, and engaging in it. I think you do an amazing job of it, and uh, you are good at that. Also, I like the fact that you have respect for the craft of funny. I tell everybody this. Listeners, you've probably heard it before. Being funny is like being tall. You either are or you are not, and it will be obvious to the world by the time you are an adult. I know people who uh, they get paid to be funny like me, and they decide on the side they want to pick up some spare cash. So they charge people and say, I'm going to teach you comedy. I can take Dwayne Faber, who's already funny, and make him funnier by teaching you some techniques that I've learned through 24 years of being on stage. I can work with you on being more efficient, getting your punchline, punching things up, but you cannot teach funny to the person that was voted most likely to become a librarian. You are funny, and you do communicate very well with humor and occasional message. Let's go back to dairy before we go full tilt on social media. Dairy farmer, you milk about 2,000 cows in Burlington, Washington. You told me before we started recording, you don't have a lot of your money tied up in land. You are an operator. You, are, you produce milk. You are not heavy on land. Uh, talk about that business model. Yeah, so for me, I, I'm a dairy farmer. I like cows. I like the business side of the industry. Uh, so for me, I choose to place all my capital in cows and, and maximize return on, on owning the cows and then leasing facilities and then leasing the ground. Um, you know, if I went and bought ground today, $10,000 an acre, I can rent it now for $200, $250. That's a 2% return on your investment. You know, whereas cows, as long as we're above $14 milk, uh, the th in theory, you should be making money on that. And, and I think as dairy farmers, we, we, we kind of lose track of that or, or ag in general. Uh, our, our job is still capital allocation. We have to put the money where it's going to earn the highest return on investment. And, and for me, that's, that's cows. And I have a, so that's what I, 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 I'm with you. We call this the business of agriculture podcast. It is a business. Uh, I make this critical point all the time. We have our detractors that love this idea, the detractors, the anti-ag folks. They have this idea where I hear bib overalls with an old, uh, you know, farm all H and a pitchfork and you know, some chickens running around. And that's cute. That's neat. It also is not a picture of modern agriculture. You are a picture of modern agriculture. You're looking at your dollars and your cents. So tell me, as you look at your dollars and cents, what's 2018 look like? So 2018 for us is going to be a, a really interesting year in the dairy industry. Uh, 2014 was the best year we've ever had. Um, you know, balance sheets ballooned. Everybody did well. And, and we're coming on years now of 15, 16, and 17 where, where a lot of people broke even to lost money, especially losing money in 15 and 16. Uh, to me, 2017 was the defining year. If you, if you made money in 2017, you're probably going to be a survivor. And if you didn't, you're looking now at 2018 as a fourth year in a row of losing money. And, and the banking world isn't that excited to go into four years of losing money. Starts to even um, your equity position quite a bit. You and the, uh, see, some of these people have millions of dollars of land capital that they start dipping into. Are they any better off than you that has very little held land? 
Um, to me, that's a false sense of reality. I mean, as long as somebody, it's all, it's still all about cash flow. Yeah, the land is there and you can go back and tap into it. But what you also have is people that have massive land equity that have a business model that's broken. And uh, they, yeah, they, it, it's only putting a bandaid on, on a geyser and it's not going to work out. And, and they can do that, but they keep eating away at their equity and they keep eating away at their, their net worth. And, and at some point, you know, it's better off just getting out with something instead at of... At some point, maybe they'd be better off to just sell the cows. And at this point, the cows may have a value for milk or they might actually just go for burger and then rent their farm ground is what you're saying. A absolutely. That's going to be a more profitable way to do it. And you have some people that their heart's not in it. You know, they got out of farming, but they forgot to sell the land or the cows. You're a, a sharp guy. You're in your 30s. Uh, I, I keep bringing it back to that because you're talking all about the business. What do you see happening in the next few years? Not just in dairy, but in ag. Okay, I can point this out. Uh, last year, net farm income was up about 3 to 4%. That's the first uptick we've had since 2013. 14, 15, 16 were down. 17 was up. 18, right now, USDA says we're going to be down another 5 to 7%. What do you see? Um, yeah, to me, I think uh, the dairy side is is replicating the, the corn and soybean markets. And it's almost like you have two two lines where they're all just a little bit off from each other. And you can't really tell the difference between a good and a bad producer through one or two down years. But going on, you know, five and six years of break even to losing money, that spread all of a sudden becomes massive. And now you're looking at huge differences between the top end and the bottom end. And, and I think we're going to see liquidation. We're going to see liquidation on, on all ends, you know, on the, on probably on the corn and soybean side and then also on the, on the dairy side. Bright spots, probably cattle. You know, cattle's looking all right. Uh, as I understand it, hogs are looking all right. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely going to be a, a trying time, and I think there's going to be some liquidation. You know, and, and some of that, we're looking at interest rates creeping up. You know, we went through a period of, you know, massive printing of money and, and that's coming to a head. And so that also is going to be a pressure that, that might push some guys to, to get out. Uh, my brother, who's no longer with us, was a basic Midwest dairyman. And he and I both do business with a huge, large Dutch dairy operator that's been in the country for about 20 years. Uh, they're similar size to you. Now, they do have a lot more real estate held than you. Um, we talk about the reality that there might be somebody that like me growing up to milk 60 cows and they say, ah, these mega dairy farms, they're putting us out of business. And we always sort of said, my brother and I, as kids that grew up in the business, no, it's a global marketplace. There's too much milk in the globe. That's what's putting you out of business. Or like you said, they, they were worn out. They had a bad business model. They just forgot to sell the cows. That's what's putting them out of business. Sort of your sentiments. We'll stay on dairy and we'll come back to some other things. Keep talking to me about it. Yeah. So what we're seeing too is, uh, you know, the Midwest typically always had a competitive advantage. And especially in the Michigan area, a lot of cows and dairy farmers moved into Michigan and they overproduced. And so what you have now, what you have now is uh, production capacities cannot handle the flow of milk. And so they're shipping milk now to Idaho and our, our co-op in Idaho is buying it for $8 a hundredweight and processing it themselves. Put that in perspective, and, to the listeners right now, your mailbox price, which is what dairy farmers call the actual money they get, the CME might say that it's $13.11, but when you put components, meaning proteins, butter fats, uh, you know, clean bill of health, whatever location, your mailbox price on milk per hundred weight is say 14 bucks? 
Yeah, that's correct. Exactly. I milk jerseys. And so jerseys, you know, higher fat, higher components. Uh, we're getting anywhere from 2 to $3 above typically the class three price that you see traded on the CME. Okay. So the point I just made there, so the listener says, well, I don't know the difference between $8 because your point was they're flooding the market because they've got too much milk. And this, this co-op in Idaho is trucking milk from Michigan for almost half price. Yeah, exactly right. And there's no place to, to, to dump the milk. And so you have a production issue and it's a PR nightmare for them to just dump it down the drain to spread it out in the fields. It has to go in the food system. And so they're saying, hey, what's it going to take for you to buy our milk? And so they're going out and, and subsidizing it and all of the producers eat the cost of that. And so if you believe and agree with me that we've had too much milk on earth for the last 30 years, see, I'm a little older than you, Dwayne. I'm 48 years old. And when I was a teenager, when we were out there with our 60 cow dairy, that was when, I believe the year was 1986, that the dairy buyout happened. Are you old, Have you heard of the dairy buyout? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, of course. So the government gave you money to get rid of your cows and promise you would never get back in the business of dairy farming. Um, are we going to see something like that again? Um, I doubt it. So there was something like that that happened recently where dairy farmers contributed to a fund to do that. And then they got accused of price fixing because through the downturn, they went out and, and bought out the, these dairies and culled the cows. But to me, I, I prefer less government, just get the government out of it. And, and the cure for low prices is low prices. You know, we're going to have naturally people getting out of the business and also, you know, a profitable cow at $16, $17 is not a profitable cow at $13 or $14. And so you end up turning it into hamburger and that's how you end up getting back your production back into line with supply. By the way, this happens all the time. And what happens is you guys can't stand it. So you just keep making more milk. You make more exactly. milk per cow. You just can't stand it. As soon as we get to where you're making money, you make more milk. Exactly right. Exactly. And, and I think that's the farmer sentiment. Anytime you have $7 corn, we're gonna, they're going to find a way to screw that up, right? I mean, if, if the margins are there, I mean, the market is saying produce, and then we, we produce. Everybody and, with an agricultural economics degree like me, when you said a minute ago, the cure for low prices and low prices, everybody that uh, took Ag Econ 101 said, I know what he's talking about. In case you're listening and you say, man, I don't know, what's he talking about? There's an old statement in economics that the cure for high prices is high prices because more supply will come in to fill that, that high price. The cure for low prices, some people just stop producing because there's no money in doing so, so then the prices come up. So it's a simple thing about supply and demand, and it's something that you absolutely will, if you don't remember anything else from this show, know that high prices are the cure for high prices and low prices are the cure for low prices. Continue, Mr. Faber. Yeah, there, and there's several world fa worldwide factors for us too. I mean, the European Union had a quota system. They came off of their quota system and, and they're really dumping a lot of product on the market. There's also a lot of uh, a powder inventory uh, in Europe that, that is owned by the government and nobody's really sure what's going to happen with that. If they're going to dump that on the market, if they're going to go and put it into animal feed or, or ship it off to some third world countries, that's also been talked about as well. And so that's also kind of overhanging the market. Um, and then NAFTA, I mean, NAFTA is a big deal for us. There's a lot of trade issues. Our, our co-op in particular sends a lot of milk to Mexico. Um, right now we have Canada dumping skim milk powder uh, competing with us in Mexico and taking away business in, in Mexico. Yeah, the, there, there's a lot of things. The, the pork people I work for love NAFTA because we're making more pork than we've ever made and we are getting rid of it on the global market, which just 20 years ago, Dwayne, we didn't do that. And we, 
and dairy haven't had that issue. You spoke of the word quota. Somebody listening to this show may not be familiar with that. Quick little dirty on that. Most of Europe and Canada, and probably a couple other countries, fixed the supply of milk because they said long time ago, hey, we got too much milk. We got what we're going to do about it. So they just fixed the supply, and therefore, by doing so, you set a price. Quota went away in much of Europe. Is it going to go away in Canada, your next nor, nor neighbor? I, I don't believe it is. And and to me, I'm, I'd prefer if they didn't. You know, I mean, we talked tough when Europe took quota off and we said, well, we're going to show them how to make cheap milk. Well, what happened is the government's still providing subsidies to them and they keep overproducing and dumping it on the world market. Um, I, I'm okay if they keep their quota. What I don't like is them basically taking this class seven pricing. It gets a little convoluted, but basically they're taking their excess protein powder and then dumping it on the world market below everybody else's costs. To me, have your quota system, but then keep all the milk in the country. And, and, th and that's my thought. When I do presentations for the pork, pork people, the poultry people, you're talking about a completely vertically integrated uh, industry. Most of the people are out there, they're producing on a contract. Hey, I've got 80 acres over here. I can put up three hog barns. I'm going to get paid per pig per day to take care of them, and I get the manure. That happens in pork. It happens in poultry. Is it going to happen in milk? I say yes. I know you don't want it to. Yeah, I, I think that's the way it is going. You're starting to see some big corporations in the Midwest that are, that are getting onto that business model. I mean, they're even teaming up with large landowners in the area that and 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 they're taking a vested interest in the dairy farm yeah I, I think that is the way in the dairy industry as well you're going to start seeing more and more of it Let, a lot of these bigger dairies are teaming up with processors it allows the process processors to have a handle on where their milk is coming from who their guy is uh, i think that's the direction it's going some of the challenges to set up a, a huge dairy has a lot of environmental challenges and it's a little bit easier, I think, to do that in the in the chicken industry or maybe even in the hog industry, you know, where you have basically essentially corporations that probably own 70 or 80 percent of, of the entire market. Um, right now in the dairy side, there's still massive amounts of family farmers that, that you know, are dairy farmers and rely on dairy for their business. I actually get people mad, Dwayne, even on corn, soybeans, wheat, whatever, when I say, if it's worked for these other commodities, why wouldn't it work for everything? It alleviates the risk and it, uh, it controls the amount of supply. I think that contractual production is going to happen on everything that's not small niche, but it already actually happens on small niche. Look at potatoes, look at carrots. I'm sure if you want to just grow um, you know, kumquats or some such thing, I bet you that's on a contractual production. Tomatoes, not, not too far from my farm in Indiana, they are tomato processors and people get 200 acre contracts to grow the tomatoes there. So I think contractual production is gonna continue because the dollars get too big. You're a 33 year old man, all of a sudden, are you going to be good to get $10 million or $12 million if you need to expand? That's going to be the problem that forces contractual production. I, I would agree with that. And, and to segue a little bit on that, I think you, to start getting to the point where you're efficient, you got to have these $7, 8000000 million. Well, if you have $7, 8000000 million, why do you want to even you know, milk cows or, or raise hogs or do any of that? And so what you're seeing is as these people get to those kind of numbers, they, they get out and or or they have family issues where they don't know how to divvy it up. And so it's going to end up being corporations that come in and buy it. So yeah, well, that, me, that, that's, 
That would be my point exactly. If you gave me $7 million and said you can just go to Arizona and uh, hike with your wife and dog, or you can put that in as one third down and you're going to put up a $21 million dairy facility and milk cows every day, 24, 7, 365. I might just take the 7 million and run to Arizona, which brings up the point of maybe it's going to be contractual just because the producer that wants to do the work is going to have to get the money or the contract. Absolutely. hundred percent. And, and you can see it even the niche market in our area of organic milk, you know, that was oftentimes a lot of smaller players, well, there was a lot of money being made. So what happened? A bunch of big guys got in six, 7,000 cow dairy farms and they just flooded the market. You know, they took organic and turned it into a commodity. And I think that's going to happen with a lot of these niche markets too. You know, we're just going to turn them into commodities. We're farmers. We're going to, we're going to find a good market and then we're going to screw it up. That's, what that's, we do. that's so. a brilliant point right there because I always say we have niche markets, but niche markets when they can start getting big or have economies of scale end up becoming commoditized. And then it's the next thing. So uh, that's dead on. We're talking a lot about money. By the way, if you somehow forgot, I'm talking to Dwayne Faber, dairyman, Twitter star, brilliant guy, sharp dude. He's a Washington State guy. He's here on the business of agriculture. Now we're talking about money. And I make jokes, Dwayne, agriculture folks don't like to talk about money. They always get real bristly when they talk about money. And as I always point out, farmers, they're almost happier when they don't make money so they can have something to bitch about. All right, you're a money guy. Tell me about money moving forward. What do you think happens in agriculture regarding the financials? Um, yeah, there's a Dutch saying too that they say uh, farmers are like pigs. If they're not squealing, they're dead. So it, I can concur with that too. It, uh, it's definitely part and parcel to most of agriculture. I, I think we're seeing a rise in the interest rates and you're seeing a lot of operations that coming off three, four years of break even to, to losses it's going to be a tough path going forward. We're going to see interest rates continue to rise and, and it kind of snuck up on everybody, you know, for the last 10, 12 years, it didn't make sense to fix interest rates. And so nobody did. And it looks like that's reversing. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether a one or 2% hike has an impact. Um, I think it will. I don't think we're going to go crazy to 10, 12%. Uh, but I do think there is some upside there. And, and I don't think it'll take much to, to upset the market dynamics where it's going to be the last straw for, for a lot of producers across agriculture. You joke online about banker relationships. How is your banker relationship? My, my, my banker loves me. So my banker follows me on Twitter. Uh, yeah, we get along really well. Some of the key is we, I, I always uh, try and have good financials for them. We use a, an accountant. So I'll give them the best financials we can and then have an open relationship and tell them when things are good, tell them when things are bad. Uh, a lot of the, I, I make jokes about it and make fun of it because the banker producer relationship is something everybody can relate to, you know, and, and especially going through some of these hard times, you know, it, hopefully people get smarter about it too. You know, we, we have to be more diligent in that relationship with the banker and, and talk to them and, uh, dead on agree that you're going to have to have that relationship. And I say, every time I go and work at these organizations and they say, what else should we be doing? I said, you know, what you should be doing, bring everybody in here that's under 40 and, uh, and on a, on a day when it's not the busy season and do a day of just financials and teach them about money and talk to them about money and do it again next year and next year and next year and next year because it's that important. And also there's still this old farmer mentality that you don't talk about money. You talk negatively about, you know, so-and-so down the road, he's got, 
No, it's just business. Agriculture is business, which is the name of this podcast, by the way. Biggest mistake people in ag make regarding financials that you've seen. Oh boy. Uh, to me, to me, cash is the lifeblood of, of the business, right? And so you have to preserve that cash uh, at all costs. Uh, a lot of mistakes I see is people taking, taking long-term money and uh, buying short-term assets with it, you know, and going out and taking, buying that tractor on their operating line or, or overextending when, when times are good. You know, we're the best farmers. We're most efficient when, when, when margins are the tightest. And, and we really have to try and learn to farm that way all the time. And when things are good, that's when we make mistakes. And uh, so I, I would say that's probably the number one mistakes people make is, is not when times are bad. They make their mistakes when times are good and overextending and buying stuff they shouldn't. Uh, for being a guy that was born in the 80s, uh, I referenced the 80s because I was paying attention. And uh, you, you've got a pretty good head on your shoulders about that uh, because people went crazy in the 70s. Uh, corn beans in Florida farmers, we called them back in our part of the world. And then uh, the 80s came along and there's people that had three and five generations worth of farming operations that went kaput. Okay, you're a social media guy. Real quickly, I found you on Twitter. The man has 14,000 followers. You know why? Because Dwayne Faber puts out funny stuff like this. Sales guy says, thanks for your tractor purchase. If you figured out how to get it from California to Washington, shipping's expensive. Dwayne says, that's for Alaska Air to figure out. It's my emotional support tractor. Funny stuff. Should people in agriculture be on Twitter or Facebook? Should they be involved in social media? Um, I, I think they should. I think it depends on the person. Uh, there are some people that portray their, uh, their operation in a good light. I, I'm a little bit fearful that they don't portray agriculture in the correct light. I mean, there's certain things about agriculture that aren't pretty. I mean, especially coming from the animal industry, you know, we have sick animals. I mean, you could film animals on my farm that are sick and it would be prime for a PETA video that would make it nationwide, you know, it, because we're dealing with, you know, anytime you deal with livestock, you end up with dead stock, you know, and it's similar to going to a hospital out here. You can go there and, and film people and say, oh, this is how they take care of the people. No, it's not. These are, these are people that are sick and we deal with that on, on the ag side too. Um, so the romanticizing of it sometimes bothers me, uh, but for certain people, that's what they want. They want to be sold a story. Um, to me, that's not who I am. I'm, I'm the guy that's entertaining. I like the business side of it. So the PR, that side of it doesn't come naturally to me. Yeah, I was the guy at the state fair. Some Seattle mom comes in and was asking about BST, a hormone that guys were giving cows to produce more milk. And I says, oh, yeah, we use it, and I drink the milk, and I'm just sitting there trying to bite my ear and slapping my hand against my chest, and she runs out there freaking out. So I, I, I'm not the guy for that. You know, I just, I just like to have a good time. I just like to, to be entertaining and engaging um, and, and, and be real about it. So, Speaking of real, you do a heck of a job with that. You are authentic. I keep up with your stuff. You're a family guy, and you are very authentic. You share stuff about your – you make jokes about your wife, and you said that now she's, she's snooping on you online. If you had a normal job, if you were not involved in agriculture, if you weren't out there a dairy farmer, what would change about your family dynamic? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I'm a family guy, so I wouldn't want to sacrifice anything to give that up. You know, I want to be here for my kids, watch them grow. Uh, I, I'd be the next uh, Damien. I'd, I'd go out there and dominate. So, uh, 
But then uh, for, you know. Wait, yeah, a like minute, you say, wait a minute. You just said I'm out here dominating. Woo, look at that. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> no, so I, I, I always enjoy the finance stuff. So whether it would have been a banker or whether it would have been uh, something tied to that, I mean, I enjoy stocks and, and that kind of stuff. I'm a little bit ADHD. Um, I probably couldn't sit too long behind a desk, but uh, that kind of stuff, that, 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 that engages me and I enjoy that. So I think these listeners are starting to pick it up. Dairy guy, kind of quippy and snippy and funny, um, a numbers and business guy and ADHD. They're going to say, wait a minute. I think that we've discovered you two were separated at birth, but he's about 15 <laughs> years younger than me. He's the only problem. He's, he's like 15 years younger than me, but I think we're kind of cut from the same cloth. So, all right. Talking to Dwayne Faber, if you want to keep up with him, it's at dfaber84, at dfaber84. Keep up with him. He's brilliant. He says funny stuff. He also says interesting stuff. Like me, he picks on vegetarians. As we always joke, Dwayne, you can pick on vegetarians all you want. Not a one of them has the strength to throw a punch. <laughs> one of his one of his Twitter uh, feeds, or I'm sorry, Twitter statements not too long ago, uh, he grabbed off of the Daily Mirror an English publication, a woman that was served chicken nuggets for the first time in 30 years she had eaten meat. And he said, I wonder what tasting 30 years of regret in one bite is like. All right. He's a funny guy. He says funny stuff. Follow him. is at D Faber. Thank you for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture. Dwayne, you're a sharp guy. You do a lot. You've got your dairy thing. You're running it as a business. What one thought, what one tip, what one idea can anybody in the business of agriculture learn from? What thing in 33 years of making your own way and running your business, what can you share with our people? Lesson, tip, idea about the business. Yeah, I, th I think it's a, a life lesson for everything is learn to be uncomfortable or put yourself in uncomfortable situations. You know, I always compare it. I, I've taken some risks, jumped off, went and talked to farmers about renting their facilities. And, and, and that's a tough conversation to have. But to me, I, I liken it to being on the edge of a cliff ready to jump in the water. You only have to be brave for about three seconds. And, and once you get off there, you're going to figure it out. And, and that was kind of my philosophy too. You know, you're, you're brave up front and you're going to have doubts and you're going to have struggles and trials. But once you make that first step, you'll figure it out. And uh, just encourage people to go out there and take action. You know, whether that's in business, whether that's in your personal life, whether that's uh, in the job, get out there, be uncomfortable and take action. And, and that would be my, my recommendation. Actually, I like that a lot. Uh, agriculture does have, while we are traditional and we are good, hardworking people that honor family and we honor, you know, our, our history. We also sometimes are a little too, shall we say, like everybody, you get fixed in your ways and you say, well, I don't know if I quite want to do this. Well, you know, mother and father didn't do it that way. And I agree with you. Great tip. Make yourself uncomfortable. You know, uh, I point out all the time that, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, but uh, putting yourself in a hell of a fix is the, <laughs> is the mother of reinvention. I'm Damian Mason. You've been listening to The Business of Agriculture, a podcast where we discuss issues impacting food, fuel, fiber, and farming. My guest was Dwayne Faber. Keep up with him. Keep up with me. I already told you he's at dfaber84. We thank you. Join me again, and we'll make it worth your while. Thanks a lot. Bye, Dwayne. Thank you, sir.